Welcome to A.T. Stewart and Sons Ministries. I'm your host, A.T. Stewart. I'm glad you've chosen to join us today as we look into the Word of God. So take your Bibles and let's hang out in God's Word for a few moments and see what God would say to us today. A college professor put this before his class and said, punctuate this sentence. Now, as you read it in your mind, you punctuated it, whether you realized it or not, and that determined how you read it. Now, some of his students punctuated it this way. Woman, without her man, is helpless. But some of the ladies in the class punctuated it this way. Woman, without her, man is helpless. It's all a matter of perspective now, isn't it? It's how you see things. It's easy to lose our perspective on Christmas. With all the commercialism and all the advertisement that's going on and all the stress and the pressure that we experience with the holiday season, it's easy for us even as Christians to forget the reason for the season. And today we're going to look at the reason for the season. It is our verse of the month in Galatians chapter 4. Take your Bibles and join me as we see why was Christmas necessary. Why was it necessary for the Son of God to leave the glories of heaven and become a man? Could there not have been some other way for God the Father to save His chosen ones? And why did Jesus have to become a baby? Why was it necessary that He be born of a virgin? And why did God send Jesus at that particular time in history? Of any time He could have sent Jesus, why at that particular time in human history? Well, Paul gives us a clear picture in our passage today of the reason for the season. And I pray the Holy Spirit will press upon you this truth and it will stay with you throughout this Christmas season. Let's look at the passage in Galatians 4, beginning with verse 4. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. So that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The reason for the season is, first of all, In God's perfect time. Paul says, in the fullness of time, God sent His Son. Now, God's timing is always perfect. It may not, at the time, seem like it to us. Generally, it does not. It's been my perception that God's timing is almost always much slower than my timing. But that shouldn't surprise us when you stop to think about it. If you've been around since eternity, what's a hundred years? Right? 
What's five years? And so God takes His time, but His time is always perfect. Such was the case with this first Christmas. God waited around 4,000 years after man first sinned before He brought a Savior. In Genesis 3.15, we see a promise that God, speaking to the serpent, said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now the people of old understood this, the Old Testament days understood this to be the first presentation of the gospel. That God would send one who would be born of woman who would crush Satan. And in the process, he himself would be bruised on the heel. Adam and Eve understood this was a promise. That God was going to send a deliverer, a Savior. And when they had their first son, Cain, they thought this is the one. And the name Cain indicates that they thought he was the one who was going to be the man-child who would be born of woman who would deliver them. But again, their timing was not God's timing, was it? It was 4,000 years later when the fullness of time came that God sent forth His Son. Jesus came on the human scene at the exact time that God had fixed and foreordained from eternity past. God had planned the exact day for His Son's birth before the world was ever created. God had been working through world events to bring about the world situation as it was that everything would be in the fullness of time. It was the fullness of time, first of all, politically. The world was unified under the Roman rule. It was a time known as the Pax Romagna, the Roman peace. Over a hundred years of peace during this time. A longer time of peace than the world has ever known before or since. And so when the gospel was to be spread through the missionaries, there was no need for a visa. There was no need to worry about closed countries or hostile countries. The known world was under Roman rule. If Jesus had come a century earlier, the gospel would have been blocked on every turn. If He'd come a century later, the people would have been preoccupied with their struggles against the barbarians from the north. Also, it was in the fullness of time concerning the road systems. You've heard the saying, all roads lead to Rome. That saying came about during this time. Because the Romans made a point to make good roads, highways, so that people could travel throughout the empire. And it was on these roads that the missionaries traveled. Thirdly, there was a universal language. Greek was the official language of the known world. If you were going to be a missionary in these days, you didn't have to go to language school. Anywhere you went, they would understand Greek. And the New Testament was written in this Koine Greek language that was understood throughout the Roman Empire. Thanks to Alexander the Great, 
who centuries earlier had made Greek the official language. Not only was it the fullness of time politically, but it was also the fullness of time economically. Under the outward glamour of the old world, culture was a seething unrest and poverty. Two men out of three were slaves. Few people had all the wealth. Most were poor. In Palestine, the economic situation was critical. The extravagance of King Herod the Great led to heavy taxation. The growing population made it impossible for the land to be able to provide enough food for the people. Most of the people were in a severe economic depression. When Jesus told His disciples to pray, Father, give us this day our daily bread, that was a serious petition. People were not sure what they were going to eat the next day. And so people in economic hard times are more open for the good news. Thirdly, it was a fullness of time morally. The Roman Empire had reached an all-time low morally. They had something that was known as the public baths, where 5,000 people would sit around and watch 3,000 people take baths. Can you imagine? Adultery was prevalent. Fornication was prevalent. There were temple prostitutes in many of the pagan religions. Mankind was in the filth of moral degradation. It was a fullness of time morally. It was a fullness of time politically. It was a fullness of time economically. And it was also the fullness of time religiously. The old gods of the Romans were either dead or dying. Men sensed the emptiness of these false gods and this false religious system. In Palestine, Jewish legalism reigned supreme through the scribes and the Pharisees. There was the works righteousness, but yet men understood and felt the inward corruption of their own souls. They knew their inability to keep this works righteousness. And all of these conditions of the world made it right for the birth of the Savior. So in God's perfect time, God sent forth His Son who took on humanity. God sent forth His Son. That tells us that Jesus is God's Son. This speaks of His deity. He is God of very God. He existed from eternity past as the Son of God. He did not begin at His birth in Bethlehem. Jesus, the Son, has existed from eternity. God sent Him forth. He was in the presence of God. He has forever existed with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. That's why John said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He shows up in the Old Testament some. He was at the burning bush. When Moses came and he said, take off your shoes for you're standing on holy ground. Moses said, well, who should I say sent me? He says, I am Yahweh, Jehovah. God saves Jesus. God is salvation. 
He was the one who showed up in the burning bush. He was the one that came to Joshua as he was on the hill overlooking Jericho, thinking, how in the world can we take this mighty fortress? And the captain of the Lord's host appeared to him. And this was the Lord Jesus appearing to him. Many other occasions he appears in the Old Testament because he existed prior to being born in that manger in Bethlehem. Jesus was sent forth by the Father. The Greek word for sent forth means to be sent on a mission. We get our word apostle from it. It means to be sent as an ambassador to represent another person. It's given the authority of that person. Even as the ambassadors in our country speak for the president. Jesus was commissioned by the Father to go forth as a Savior and accomplish the redemption of His elect. He was the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One of God. And He took on humanity, born of woman. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. You see, Jesus possessed the two natures, the divine and human nature, united indissolubly in one divine person. He wasn't half God and half man. He was all God and all man. This human nature was wondrously prepared by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary. Therefore, unlike our humanness, which is sinful, Jesus' humanness was sinless, perfected, and filled with positive righteousness. That's why He had to be born of a virgin. Because it was through man that sin entered into the human race, and it is through men that it is propagated to the children. But since He did not have an earthly father, that sin was not propagated in His human flesh, in His humanness. And so it was possible for Jesus not to sin. Or He could have sinned. If He could not have sinned, this temptation would have meant nothing. But what he, what he could do that we cannot do is, He could not sin. Because He did not have that inclination, that sin nature that we have. Why was it necessary for Jesus to be both divine and human? First, he had to be human because, excuse me, he had to be divine because only God could offer a worthy sacrifice for the sins of man. No man could have offered a worthy sacrifice in and of himself. It took God to offer that worthy sacrifice. Secondly, he had to be man because it was man who sinned. And in order to take our place, In order to take man's place, he had to become a man. And so you see, in the one person Jesus, and only in Jesus, who is God and man, do we have a perfect Savior. That's why the Bible says there's no other name given by man under heaven whereby we must be saved in the name of Jesus. As God, He could offer a worthy sacrifice. As man, He could die for us. Humans. And it says, not only was he born of a woman, but he was born under the law. Being born into the human race, Jesus was immediately placed under the natural law 
that is in the hearts of all people. Our forefathers spoke of the natural law. They mean that sense of right and wrong that we all have, that we're born with. Paul talks about it over in the first part of Romans. You might call it conscience. But there is a sense of right and wrong that we're just born with. We just know it's not right to kill people. We just know it's something not right about stealing. Jesus was born under this law, first of all. But not only that, but being born as a Jew, He was also born under the Mosaic law. Now mankind has all fallen short of the natural law. As the Bible says, for we all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And every Jew fell short also of the Mosaic law with all of its regulations and observances. So it was necessary for Jesus to be a human so he could be under the law. Because he had to be under the law so he could redeem us from the law. And so in God's perfect time, His Son took on humanity in order for Him to redeem His people. Verse 5, so that He might redeem those who were under the law. You see, they were under the curse of the law. Look in verse 10 of chapter 3. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Man, because of his inability to perfectly keep the holy law of God, stands under the curse of the law. We're in bondage, slaves to the law because we're helpless to keep it. Hostile to the law, unable to submit to it. The law was, has pronounced condemnation upon us because of our failure to be able to keep it. We're also under the punishment of eternal death, which the law exacts upon us. But Jesus, by His perfect life and His perfect death, redeemed us from the curse of the law. You see, He fulfilled the law perfectly. And when He fulfilled the law perfectly, He fulfilled it for His people, for His elect, for Christians. You see, not only did Jesus die for you, but understand this, He also lived for you. What you could not do, and that is perfectly obey the law, He did. He not only died in our place, but He lived in our place. He satisfied the perfect demands of the law of God for us. And therefore, He was able to redeem us from the demands of the law as well as from the condemnation of the law. You see, in His death, He became a curse for us, taking the punishment of the law upon Himself. Look in verse 13 of chapter 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Now, in order for Jesus to take on the curse of the law, then there had to be some violation. Now, since He never sinned, the violation was when they crucified Him on the cross. He became cursed. 
Because cursed is everyone who hangs on a cross. And because He could become the curse in our place, He could take the curse off of us. And it was placed on Him. He has bought us out of our slavery to the law and to works righteousness associated with us. With us. The word redeemed is a word that Paul took out of the slave market of his day. It was a term that meant going down to the slave market and purchasing a slave off the slave block. He has purchased us out of our slavery to the law and our slavery to sin. Now this slave could either be set free at that point or he could come under the new master. Now we are under a new master, a loving God, no longer an evil slave master. But He has purchased us and set us free. We stand under the law, condemned as a slave to our attempts to earn God's favor through keeping the law, but yet totally unable to do so, as you see in verse 11 of chapter 3. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous shall live by faith. We can't keep the law. We cannot earn God's favor. We cannot earn God's acceptance. But Jesus became a man, lived that perfect life, died in our place on the cross, thus freeing us from that work for righteousness, from trying to earn God's favor to a faith righteousness. He has done everything necessary for us to have right standing with God through faith. There's nothing left for us to accomplish. He has accomplished it all. He's redeemed us. He's paid the price through His perfect life. And we can have total freedom from trying to earn God's acceptance or favor. God declares us righteous through faith in Christ. Remember this. It is not what we must do to be saved. It is what He has done to save us. These Galatians had forgotten that. They were thinking they had to do something. It's not what we have done have to do to be saved, but it's what He has done to save us. John Newton wrote that song that we all are familiar with and love, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. John Newton was an only child. When he was seven years old, his mother died. When he was eleven, he went to sea to be a sailor. And he got involved in that inhuman African slave trade business. Soon hardened by the evil of his surroundings, he made it his point to outdo his companions when it came to immorality, when it came to blasphemy, when it came to vulgarity. He wanted to be the worst. When he was 23 years old, the ship that he was on encountered a tremendous storm. 
It was such a bad storm that he feared he would lose his life. And in desperation, he cried out to God, God, have mercy on me and save me. And God graciously saved him. He never wanted to forget the depths of sin from which God had rescued him by His sovereign grace. And so over the mantle in his home, he inscribed Deuteronomy 15.15, which says, And thou shalt remember that thou was a bondman in the the land of Egypt, when the Lord thy God redeemed thee. He never wanted to forget how low he had gone and from the depths of which the loving Savior had graciously redeemed him. We must never forget it's what God has done that saves us. Not what we have done. It's His grace that saves us. And it's His grace that sanctifies us. He sent forth His Son in His perfect time. And He took on humanity that He might redeem us from the curse of the law. Because He was declared righteous, He declares us righteous through faith in Him. And it gets better. Not only have we been redeemed from the curse of the law, but that they may receive the adoption as sons. Verse 5. So that He might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Not only did He take us out of our slavery to the works righteousness and trying to earn His favor and from the law, but He placed us in His family as His full children. He adopted us, given us all rights and privileges as His children. How great and wonderful that is. It would be like you, if it were possible, it would be like you going to the governor of our state and saying to him, you know, so-and-so has committed many murders. He's a serial killer. He is scheduled to be executed on December the 20th. But I want you to kill my son instead of this serial killer. Now to add to that, this serial killer has declared openly he hates you. He's hostile toward you. But you go and you say, please, can we make this exchange? And the governor somehow allows that to happen. And you give the life of your child so that this mass murderer won't have to be executed. Now, that's far-fetched enough, isn't it? But now, add to that, you take this serial killer and you adopt him into your family. You give him your last name. And if he goes out and does anything else, it's going to be your name attached to it. And not only that, but you make him a full heir, equal with your other kids, to share in your inheritance. And you welcome Him into your home. And you love Him. And you treat Him as a son of privilege. 
Now that's so far-fetched we can't even conceive it. But that's what God did. It's exactly what He did. He sent His own Son to die for us. We who were hostile toward Him, many who have just openly admitted they hate Him, and yet He died for us and He adopted us into His family. And we have a very personal, close relationship with God the Father. The Holy Spirit has been given to us, verse 6, because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We have that close, intimate, personal relationship with God. One of the New Testament linguists was trying to get a handle on how to translate that Arabic term, Abba. This was several years ago, and, and he was over in the Holy Land, and he had flown in on a plane, and as he was getting off the plane, uh, this Arabic fellow was getting off the plane with him, and this little four-year-old child of this Arabic man came running up to his dad saying, Abba, Abba. And suddenly he realized that word means daddy. Daddy. It's what a little child calls his father. It's a term of endearment. It's a term of intimacy. Daddy. And we as the children of God can call Him our heavenly daddy. We've been adopted into His family. We have the Holy Spirit of adoption. How marvelous that we have access to the throne of our Daddy. The heavenly throne. But not only that, but He has made us heirs. As Paul says, therefore, verse 7, you're no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We're not a slave to the law. We're not a slave to sin. We're not a slave to works righteousness anymore. It's Christians. We are sons and daughters of our heavenly daddy and full heirs through him. Now, that means we don't earn that inheritance. God has accomplished it for us. We are heirs of salvation. We have heaven as our inheritance. And since it's through Him, we know it's a gift of God. Watchman Nee was a Chinese theologian that lived back in the last century. He's written a number of books. You may be familiar with him. The story is told one day of one of his converts came to him troubled and upset. And he said, Mr. Watchman Nee, he said, I, I think I'm losing my salvation. He said, you know... I try and I try and I try to be good and is I just keep failing. I just cannot be faithful. I think I'm losing my salvation. Watchman Nee pointed to his dog who was over there in the corner of the room. He said, you see that dog? He said, he's trained. He's perfectly obedient. I tell him to come, he comes. I tell him to go, he goes. He never messes up in the house. He is a loyal friend. And in the next room is my little son. He's untrained. He soils himself. He makes a mess wherever he is. But do you know which one's my heir? It's not that obedient dog that's clean and neat and does whatever I tell him. It's that messy 
Son. He's my heir. You see, we're heirs. Not because we earned it. Not because we're perfect. Not because we deserve it. But because we're sons and daughters of God. Because Jesus died for us. And your inheritance, your uh, is secure. He doesn't disown you. Once you are born into His kingdom, once He adopts you, you're an heir, a full heir, and nothing can change it. The reason for the season is God's sovereign grace. What He has done. In His perfect time, He sent forth His Son to redeem His elect from the curse of the law and to place us in His family as children, sons and daughters, and as full heirs. Don't try to earn His acceptance. Don't try to earn His favor. Don't fall under the curse of the law again, having been redeemed from it. On July the 31st, 1838, a missionary by the name of William Nibs gathered 10,000 slaves together for a time of celebration. It was the island of Jamaica. The Emancipation Proclamation had been signed and it was to go into effect that night at 12 o'clock. As the 12 o'clock hour approached, they had a huge, huge coffin made. And as that hour approached, the different slaves would come and put chains and whips and branding irons and fetters of all kinds and slave garments into this coffin. All those things that represented their terrible slavery. And then as it approached the time for 12 o'clock, they put the lid on the coffin and they nailed it shut. And as the first toll of the bell came, William Nibs proclaimed, The monster is dying. And each time the bell rang, he said it again, the monster is dying. And then the slaves began to join in. And by the time they hit the twelfth sound of the bell, all ten thousand were shouting, the monster is dead. The monster is dead. Let us bury him. And they lowered the coffin into the ground and covered it up. And they spent the rest of the night shouting and dancing and celebrating their freedom. But there's a sad, tragic aspect of this story. On another part of the island, a remote part of the island, the slaves had not gotten word about the Emancipation Proclamation. And their slave owners didn't want them to get the word. And so they kept it from them as long as they could. Now, though these slaves were legally emancipated, because they didn't know it, they still lived in slavery for many months. 
Jesus has signed the Emancipation Proclamation, the Emancipation Proclamation for His children. You've been set free from the slavery of sin, the slavery of the law. Don't live like one who is still in its bondage. If you're not a Christian, you can be set free today. You can be emancipated from the curse of the law, from trying to earn God's acceptance and favor, which you can never do. Jesus has earned it for you. Come to Him in faith and surrender. As a Christian, rejoice in your liberty in Christ. Live as a free man, a free woman, rejoicing in righteousness. Let's pray. Father, thank You that You have redeemed us through the Lord Jesus Christ. May we remember the reason for the season and rejoice in the freedom we have in Jesus. In whose name I pray, amen.